0: Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode of the show is supported by We Are One Composites and YT Industries. This year I've been running We Are One's Faction 29er carbon wheels on my bike and they have been faultless. Still running as tight and true as the day they arrived and I can't say I've ever had that experience with any other wheels. We Are One put a ton of attention to detail into the manufacturing process to ensure that each rim is ready to withstand the abuse that us riders will inevitably throw at it. I love how the wheels ride, giving me confidence that they'll go where I put them and a level of compliance that means they don't punish me if I get slightly offline. As a downtime listener and as it's nearly Christmas, We Are One have got an amazing discount for you. For the month of December you can get 20% off any of their stock wheels and bars by using the code SANTAGIVES20 at the checkout. That's Santa gives all one word followed by the number 20. Head to weareonecomposites.com now and check out what they have to offer. This episode is also supported by YT Industries and I'm going to be joined by their Chief Technology Officer Chris Hilton. YT have recently opened the YT mill right here in the UK near Guildford in the awesome Surrey Hills and they're welcoming mountain bikers to drop by for a coffee, chat bikes and to have the opportunity to demo the whole YT range. The staff at the mill can help with anything from bike sizing to suspension setup and they can even help you get your bike set up perfectly for you when it arrives from YT. They're also going to be handling all UK customer services right from the mill. The YT Mill is basically like walking inside the website, so you can check out all of YT's models in the flesh, including their new Izzo trail bike and their well-known and loved Capra. If you want to demo the bikes, then you can. Just contact the staff at the mill to take your dream bike for a ride for free. The local trails include Pease Lake, and you're right in the heart of the Surrey Hills, so there's tons of amazing riding to be had. They've also got a cafe, so after your ride, you can get your hands on some of their lovely Black Road coffee. Good times at the YT Mill Surrey Hills are available Tuesdays to Saturdays from 9am to 5pm and you can find out more over at yt-industries.com. Don't forget to make sure you subscribe to the show. It's free and it's super easy to do. It means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. There's buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. While you're on that page you can also join my newsletter for a weekly update of interesting bike related stuff, competitions, products I've been enjoying and more. If you want to support the show, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop and grab yourself a treat. We've got t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies, all 100% organic, printed to order and shipped with no single use plastic. They make the perfect Christmas treat for you or the other mountain bikers in your life. If you're not already, then please give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. It's a really nice way for me to be able to interact a bit more with the listeners. So the more who follow, the better. All right, in this episode of the show, I'm joined by YT's Chief Technology Officer, Chris Hilton, to find out more about his career and how he's shaped some of the technology that we ride. We chat about his early days as a racer and how he's managed to work in some amazing roles like Product Technology Manager at SRAM and now a CTO at YT. We also chat a bit about some of the challenges of the modern mountain bike industry, such as the trade-off between pleasing customers, media and athletes with the same products, patents, and much, much more. So without further ado, here's Chris Hilton. Chris Hilton, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's it going?
1: It's going great, Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: That's an absolute pleasure. So um, yeah, let's, let's start from the beginning and wind the clock back a bit. Tell us a little bit about how bikes came into your life? Because it wasn't mountain biking originally for you, was it? Well, no,
1: I'm a pretty old dude. When uh, <laughs> when bikes first came into my life, there there wasn't really mountain bikes. Um, you know, I guess I was pretty much like any kid. I, I grew up on, you know, uh, little bikes and kids' bikes and BMX bikes and just going around the neighborhood, uh, raising hell, causing trouble. And uh, I grew up in the deep south in the USA and bikes were – just basically our escape vehicle to go out and explore the world and see what's going on and you know that just like i think most kids maybe not these days but but all of us that are listening to this probably grew up as a bike as our transportation and how we got around in the world so that's how i started yeah. just the normal ways
0: yeah 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 and how do you get from there then to kind of getting more serious about bikes am I, am I right in thinking there was some triathlon in the early stages
1: yeah i guess since you already caught that i'll have to admit it um <laughs> yeah i actually started out pretty young my mom was a runner and um i kind of got into running when i was pretty young like 12 13 years old just out of you know my mom was doing it's like oh i can run and started doing some running races road races and things like this and um I also was uh, on a couple of swim teams and did a lot of competitive swimming at a really young age. And, you know, this was in the early and mid 1980s. And uh, in the late mid 80s, probably, you know, 83 or 84, triathlon was more or less kind of becoming a thing. And I looked at that and said, well, I can run and and I'm a pretty good swimmer and any fool can ride a bicycle. So I entered a triathlon and um, did that. And you know, I was a pretty competitive person, generally speaking, and was really upset that uh, actually the triathlon was also on a criterium style course with corners. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Actually, at that time, you didn't even have to wear a helmet in triathlon. So I had on a pair of running shoes, running shorts, and a borrowed bicycle and did a triathlon and and it was it was really awesome and i was really pissed off because uh i did really well in the swim and then got destroyed on the bike and then fought my way back on the run as a i don't know 13 or 14 year old kid and was really frustrated that uh the bike destroyed my entire results so just kept doing that kept doing triathlons and uh in doing so really fell in love with the bike part of triathlon which um, was really cool. And, um, yeah, triathlons were a big part of my life for a long, long time. But as I did it more and more, um, the bike itself and riding the bike got more and more interesting to me, the speed and the tactics and everything that went with it. So I started doing criteriums and road races. And, uh, because I started running pretty young, my, my knees weren't in the greatest shape. And so I just more or less transitioned over to road racing.
0: Okay. And that carried all the way through to kind of college and into your studies, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah. It. Um, I guess I probably did my last triathlon in, in 89 or something like that, at least as a young person, and had really done a lot more road racing and criteriums then, which were really popular in the U.S., and uh, went off to college and um, One of my next door neighbors in the dormitories, he had a Schwinn Cimarron mountain bike, which was the most awesome thing ever. I mean, I had a a super outrageous racing road bike, but this Schwinn Cimarron kind of like spoke to me out of the corner of his room. And he never rode it, he just hung out. And like, you know, I was like, hey, I'm going to take that thing for a ride. He's like, yeah, man, go for it. And it was pretty crazy because, you know, the bike had been ridden and, I don't know. It was probably like a 21 inch frame or something. Like the seat yes. was slammed all the way to the top tube, but, uh, you know, there's little trails all around there and just to go and jump off a curb and, and do these things was like, wow, this is just really awesome. And I just fell in love with it. And, um, that was pretty much the end of the road bike except for, you know, a little bit of training here and there. And I just really got into mountain biking and then mountain bike racing. And that was Oh geez, I don't know, ninety one or something like that. 1990, 1991, something like that.
0: Yeah, where where was this? Where did you go to college?
1: Um, I went to college in Mobile, Alabama, a place called University of South Alabama. It's right on the Gulf Coast, and uh-huh. uh, there's a lot of uh, a local shop down there called um, Cadence One Hundred and Twenty, which still exists. They had a little, an actual team and a pretty good team, and some some good riders and some good racers and kind of hooked up with them and really sort of, um, you know, fell in with a crew, I guess a little bit. And, you know, they helped me move along and learn some things. And I worked in the shop from time to time and, um, learned a lot there and got some great support in racing and and had a few years while I was in college of, of mountain bike racing and, you know, tried to actually take it seriously and, and had a good time.
0: Yeah, and the scene at that point, especially in the U.S., was growing at a crazy rate. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, we had World Cups in the U.S. at that time. There was Norban Nationals. Um, there was Cactus Cups. There was a lot of races and also big races. So mountain biking in this time, which is early and mid '90s, um, was really picking up a lot. Uh, I mean, we could do easily do two races a week, and within a four or five hour drive. We could hit big races every weekend. And it, it was really cool. You'd go to a big race in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You'd be like, oh my God, there's so-and-so. I saw him in the magazine. <laughs> and it seems crazy today because you see everything online, but to see somebody, you know, a pro racer or something that you'd only seen a magazine and actually be able to line up and race against them was, you know, that was a super highlight. Makes you. It really makes you burn with wanting to To compete and and do that,
0: yeah, that's awesome. Was and was there always kind of a a thought of wanting to become a professional racer at that point? Was it quite a serious thing for you?
1: Well, you know, my dad's got a famous quote that was, you know, riding that bicycle ain't going to get you nowhere, boy. And (laughs) he kind of said it jokingly, but you know, um, I was working in a paper mill um, after I graduated from college and. You know, I was, I was, I had some pretty good races and some decent results, and was making a little bit of money, at least enough to put gas in my truck and and buy new brake pads. And um, you know, just for everybody that's out there listening, at this time, state of the art was a titanium hardtail, and you know, a suspension fork it probably had significantly less than fifty millimeters of actual travel and twenty six inch wheels with rim brakes and uh tubes so it was a a different time but it was it was really cool and uh, yeah i did i really did want to think i was going to do more and i you know was racing with um an expert license and most of the local races were combined pro expert fields and so you know i was able to ride against pros and and beat them on occasion and had some decent results in some mixed races, but. you know, you're, there's only so far you're going to go as a, you know, a local head honcho racer in uh, some parts of the world, and everybody knows that if you if you want to really make an effort at it, you're going to have to get out into the world and travel and, and go to the big races. So yeah, did that too.
0: Excellent, and yeah. So how far did it go with the racing side of things? You ended up at a World Cup, at least, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I did end up racing a World Cup and a couple Norba Nationals and. Cactus Cup and some other big ones. Um, It, you know, it was interesting because after I graduated from college and worked at the paper mill a little bit and did as much racing as I could out of the back of my truck, um, I actually uh, met a guy who's still in the industry who was also from the South and uh, we got to talking and he had a job opening in California and I was living in Alabama at the time and He's like, well, hey, uh, you know, I've got this job. You might be interested in it. Why don't you fly out to California and interview? I'm like, yeah, okay. That sounds pretty cool. Um, it was actually a company that I was um, getting some equipment support and, you know, let's call it sponsorship at the time. And so flew out to California and they're like, hey, well, let's do it. Why don't you come join us? And, you know, when can you start? And I'm like, well, it's, what a, it's Thursday it's a two-day drive from Alabama to California. I can be here. I can be here Monday. And they're like, well, (laughs) hang on. Like, like, you know, don't you need to get like, no, everything's in the back of my truck and all my bikes. I just need to fly home and get in the car and drive across (laughs) the country. And it's more or less what I did. And the South is a great place. And I really loved growing up there. And there's a lot of experiences that I had there that you could never have again or you know, anywhere else in the world, but getting out of there and moving to California as a mountain biker, it was like well, it was a dream. Uh, I mean, it was a dream come true. And uh, actually, got a job working at Diamondback in nineteen, I think it was the end of nineteen ninety three, as an assistant product manager. And um, basically, what that meant is I had to put the bikes together and go to the photo shoots and make sure that you know, bikes were clean and that the workshop wasn't falling apart. It wasn't glamorous, but it was, it was amazing because, you know, every day after work, there's a group of 10 people like, okay, we're going for a ride now. And, um, you know, know, the things that you didn't have so much in the South, like big groups of people, epic trails going for as far as you want to go and and no rain was, uh, really awesome.
0: Well, that was the, California was the real sort of center point of the industry at that at that point, I guess.
1: Yeah, it really was. I mean, this was when this was the the first really big commercial boom of mountain biking in the mid nineties, and you know, this is when the first big race trucks appeared. You know, you had you had Yeti, you had Schwinn Factory, you had basically every you know every big team, every big company, or even small companies had downhill team, cross country team. Trials riders, dual slalom team, like it was really, really big. And to go to those races then was, it was the equivalent of going to a big World Cup today in terms of the crowds that were there. Um, the difference was you had these, you know, these absolute outrageous superstars like Tomac and guys that were doing cross country and downhill and maybe dual slalom too. And, um, you know, you could just, you could see. You know, bike Hollywood was right there, and that for me was really just exciting and to be able to meet some of these people and some of these athletes and ride with them and uh you know some of them are relationships people that I worked with back then, like Dave Cullinan and lee donovan that that rode for Diamondback. you know, I still have relationships with those people today, and it's it's really funny to think that geez almost I don't know coming up on thirty years later. We were all young and, and doing different things back then, but yeah, it was, it was a great time. It was a really good time. Yeah. So I yeah, raced a right. couple of world cups, a uh, world cup, a couple of Northern nationals some stuff like that. And what you find out real quick is that no matter how good you are, um, in your local scene or even in a bigger local scene, everything's a little different when you get to a world class level. And it took me exactly two races to realize this is never, ever, ever going to happen. Um, <laughs> It, it's simply a different level of capability and genetics and training and everything that, um, you know, you, I, I think a lot of people think, you know, if I trained really hard, I could be as good as this person or that person that's a pro. And while that's true for some people, you know, the top athletes in any sport today, it's not just hard work. It's genetics, it's skill, it's training, it's it's everything. You have to be the total package. Like hard work alone is not enough because the best athletes in the world, wor- world are also doing hard work. It just so happens they're genetically gifted. They have special skills. They're able to slow time down or whatever it may be. And, yeah, if you don't have it all, like just showing up and blowing up is not so, not so common anymore. But But good times for sure. So I started yeah. out actually doing complete bikes at Diamondback.
0: Okay, right. So the, yeah, you were in in the the full bike thing right yeah. at the very start, yeah. but then things kind of progress. How do we get from kind of, yeah, the early days as an assistant product manager to more recent times? Because there's a bit of a path there and some some random turnings along the way as well.
1: Yeah, I mean that's like a geological window of time. It's not just a few <laughs> years, <laughs> but um, yeah, I spent a few years at Diamondback and, and made uh, a lot of trips and spent a lot of time in Asia. Um, and you know, if you've ever been to, to China, you can imagine what it might have been like in the 1990s. It was it was the wild west. It's it's changed a lot now, but um, got a lot of experience over there and um, kind of you know moved into different jobs in product development with Diamondback and. Um, then I um, left Diamondback and went to work at Easton Sports, which at that time was based in California and producing tubing and handlebars and suspension parts, you know, right in uh, Van Nuys, California. There's an actual factory there. And This was the time from when uh, Easton was a material supplier. they made, uh-huh. They made parts for other people and they wanted to change from being a material supplier to an actual brand, you know, selling their own products. And so I was a part of that, that development and, um, working for a guy named John Harrington, who's long, long time. He goes back even way longer than me. Um, and building Easton into an actual, Brand that sold its own products, and and it was really cool because not only did we sell our own products, we were actually making them right there. You know, the factory and the draw benches and all the tube forming and anodizing and heat treating was all right there, in you know, more or less right in the heart of L.A. And that was a really cool experience, and I learned a lot from some some amazing people there. That uh, some of them are still around today in the industry, and and some of the you know, when you work in a manufacturing environment, things are way different than they are when you just work in an office and, and you buy stuff from whatever factory has the best price or whatever it is. And it was a really cool time. So that was my transition from bikes to components. And then I transitioned back to bikes again, uh, doing, uh, I met my wife actually at one of my last big races in Mammoth. And, um, she was just with a, a big group of girls that were with the bike magazine and inner bike. Uh, they were up there having, hanging out, having a good time. And we, I met my wife and like, we fell in love and like, okay, well, I'm going to move from Ventura County to orange County, California, which is like a hundred miles. And, um, so moved down South to orange County, which was, was really cool. And, but I was driving up to LA every day and that was 70 miles one way all the way Whoa. through LA. And I think I destroyed three cars in that time, just, you know, <laughs> just running them into the ground. Cause it's not just a 70 mile drive one way. It's like, almost like a war zone, 70 miles. <laughs> but, uh, so I, so I left Easton and I started for a company making uh, sourcing and making bikes for the mass market. And we did bikes for Costco and Sam's club and Walmart and place things like this. and you know that was uh, you can go to go from Easton where you're making you know one hundred and thirty dollar carbon handlebars in your own factory to making one hundred and ninety nine dollar bikes is a pretty big change. and especially when you're dealing with some of these extraordinarily big retailers, the biggest in the world, the purchasing systems and the logistics and the volumes that they and the quality systems that they have in place are it's a a totally different end of the bike industry that even most people in the bike industry don't understand how the mass market bike works. Uh Um, the volumes and the prices, it's, it's a whole different scale of that. So, um, spent a few years doing that and then, uh, had a little side, uh, event that happened that led me into a little bit different industry for a while.
0: Yeah, tell us a bit about that. So you you're a you're a passionate surfer anyway at this point in time, yeah.
1: Yeah, since I was a little kid, I've always lived you know really close to the ocean, uh, close enough to be able to at least go there on weekends, if not more. And uh, moving to California really really sparked that. And my first job when I got to California, I just said, which way is the closest beach? I'm going to find <laughs> an apartment, and I uh, did that. And um, surfing was something that I always did or tried to do. But when I moved to California, it really kicked into another gear and and became a real passion. And, um, it was basically my escape from bikes because, you know, every day I go to work on bikes and every night we go ride bikes and every weekend we're going to bike races and, you know, it it basically consumes your life and and you need maybe an escape from that or something else. And, And surfing was what I did for that. And, I um, had been making a lot of trips to Asia, and I um, was in the Hard Rock Cafe in Hong Kong, and I met these these two gentlemen from Japan. Uh, I guess they're about my age. And you know, hey, what are you guys doing here? They're like, Oh, we're you know we're traveling into China. We're making surfboards. And at this time, making surfboards in Asia was it existed, but it was relatively unknown. The surfboard manufacturing industry was a cottage industry, and if if you lived in Santa Barbara, then you bought a surfboard made in Santa Barbara. And same thing if you lived in the UK, you know, your board was more than likely locally made or Australia or whatever it may be. There was some moving surfboards around the world, but it was mostly localized industry. And so it just so happened. I was also going into China the next day and the guys were like, hey, come come see us and we'll hang out. So. <laughs> Uh, I knew some local surfboard factories while where I was in California. And so I had been around factories and surfboard manufacturing in a little bit, at least small scale and had some friends that were shapers. And so I go into mainland China, take a boat up the, up the river and go to this little town and, you know, get in taxi and sure as hell pull up to this factory. And you could hear, you could smell the resin. You could hear the planers going and you know, there's 15 people working in this factory and making surfboards in mainland China. They were getting materials from Australia and from different places in the world. They were making hand-shaped surfboards in, in, in mainland China and, um, just kind of hung around there for a bit and was doing some business with Costco and bikes and others. And an opportunity to supply surfboards came up and, um, yeah. did a, did that for a little bit. I was still doing bikes, but I was doing that as an additional kind of opportunity and
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a cool time. And this was at a really a time in the, in the surf industry when it was just exploding. Um, it, the, the business was going through the roof and it was primarily fashion business selling t-shirts and thing and board shorts to non-surfers was huge. But, um, Yeah. That was a fun side business into surf. And, you know, a lot of people look at the bike industry and they think, well, the bike industry is, you know, it's so immature and undeveloped and it's just a bunch of bike geeks. And that's sort of true, but it isn't true, but it does appear that way. But if you think that's bad, go into the surf business and uh, the only thing maybe worse than a mountain biker is a climber and the only thing worse than a climber is a surfer when it comes to work ethic because if there is waves they are gone it does not matter it does not matter what's going on the meeting is over we are going surfing so um, there's no such thing as weekends there's tides and wind and swell and that's it Everything else gets done later, but, uh, yeah, that was fun. And, and then, um, is when I hooked back up with the, the SRAM crew.
0: Okay. And how so how did that kind of contact come back together then? Um,
1: well, I, you know, from, from being in the bike industry, even from the very early days, um, there's a guy who works at SRAM today. His name is John Nadeau. He's the vice president of OEM sales there today. He was, when I was at Diamondback, he was, my sales rep, he was the very first SRAM sales rep and the only sales rep at the time. And, you know, he came around peddling grip shift and yeah, whatever, but he's a super cool guy. And he's a, you know, he was an amazing salesperson, uh, convinced us to spec some grip shift. And we did, and it just kind of turned into a relationship. The SRAM guys, you know, everybody that worked at the company was, they were, they were bike riders they were serious about what they were doing. They were the underdogs. They were trying really hard and, um, they were just great people to work with. And I always, you know, had a working relationship and a bike riding relationship with a bunch of different people there. And, um, yeah, when, um, I started looking around and the surf industry had gone downhill quite a bit and was kind of over the mass market bike thing. They, sort of, you know, opened the door and said, well, Hey, why don't you come and we've got a position here and just give it a try and see how it goes. And I guess the rest is history, but, um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible time in my life as a, as a product guy and as a cyclist working at SRAM. I, I, I mean, it, it changed my life to a large extent, at least my professional life and, and taught me a tremendous amount and, uh, it's, you know, I'll forever be thankful for the opportunities they gave me to to do some of the crazy stuff we did there.
0: Yeah, well, you you were product technology manager while you were there, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's when I ended. I started out as product manager, and at the end, they called me product technology manager. You know, probably I didn't really fit the the mold of a product manager so good. I was a little bit more of a um, rough around the edges kind of <laughs> <laughs> whatever, but. I, you know, it was to me, it was always about how do we make the bike better? How do we make the ride better? And, uh, you know, traditional product manager, you you get mired down in a lot of other things. And and so I had the freedom to really experiment and work with the engineers and designers there and, and everybody to just come up with ideas and see if they made sense and see if they worked. And sometimes they did. Yeah, well,
0: you were you were behind some pretty big innovations uh, in your time at SRAM. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, I worked with a lot of great people, and we, you know, one of our first big ones um, that we did was the original one by, and it, this was at a time when two by was a thing. Two by existed. SRAM introduced the two by ten drivetrain, and. Shimano a few years later got into it and and there was a big fight of two-by versus three-by at that time. And it was really, it was, it was warfare in terms of components. Like if, if that's what you were into, um, it was really, it was difficult to convince people that two-by was a good alternative to three-by. Yeah. While this is going on, um, we came up with the idea for one-by. Uh, I was working in Germany. I had started out, I was technically working in Chicago, but more or less working out of my house in California because it was yeah 70% travel or something. And uh, SRAM asked me, hey, like, what do you think about moving to Germany for a couple of years? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Europe, like, I guess should be okay. My wife's like, yeah, let's go. So uh, we moved over to Germany, which is where SRAM's drivetrain development is located. Okay. T- test lab, prototyping, engineering, everything is is there in, in Germany. And it was supposed to be two years and ended up being oh, one more year, one more year. But uh, working with the the people there, um, you know, there was a lot of ideas that were sort of around in various different places and box and shelves and on prototype bikes that – like, what's this? Oh, this is a, you know, we made it for so-and-so, and it was this, but it never really worked. And so they put it aside. And one buy came about from, you know, I don't know if you've spent a lot of time writing in Germany. It's probably not so much different than your home. Like, for six months out of the year, you basically got rain, mud, and cold, and a bunch of leaves. And we really struggled with drive trains and how to keep them working through winters in bad conditions. And why do we have all this extra stuff and dropper posts are coming along and now you got more stuff on the bike and it just started becoming really like, God, we got to do something. We got to get rid of some of this stuff. And so we started making some prototype one by drive trains and, um, yeah, we like just put a bunch of pieces together and tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it. And because we're in Germany and nobody really cared so much, like, ah, yeah, you know, they're, it's just Germany. Like they're doing whatever they're doing and <laughs> just keep making two by drivetrains and we'll be good. And so we had a lot of freedom to prototype and test different things. And, you know, we created a, a, a pretty refined prototype and, uh, my boss and, his boss came over to Schweinfurt for their yearly visit to make sure we weren't just sitting in a beer garden and probably we were, but um said, Hey, you know, I want to show you guys something, and you know, pulled the bike out, and it at that time it had a uh ten forty tooth cassette on it. So it wasn't a 42 okay. yet. And um it had it already had a you know, what we call an X-sync chain ring. So it had no chain guide. It had this gigantic cassette. It had this really crazy looking rear derailleur, but no front shifter. No, like it was just this stripped down hot rod of a drivetrain. And we had a little trick where you'd put it in the the lowest gear in the 40 tooth cog and When some, even in a parking lot, when you sit on it, you start pedaling, you're like, oh my God, this is crazy. And then you shift through the gears and you feel this giant range and oh, this is outrageous. And so like, it was one of these things where when people saw it for the first time, it was so outrageously different than anything that you could ever could, you could never invent such a thing in your head that it just shocked you. And then you wrote it and it's like, wow, this thing really works. It was, you know, for certain people, it was an automatic, well, that's gold. Like that's, that's it. That's the answer for other people. It was like, yeah, that's cool, but get out of here. We're focused on two by, we've got a war going on over here with two by versus three by, and you guys are monkeying around with some crazy cassettes, like get out of here. But my boss is, you know, really smart, insightful guy. And he's like, no, you keep working on that and keep it going. and, And we did. and, it grew and grew, and, and then we brought out uh, XX, the original XX1. And uh, I guess for sure after that, things changed quite a bit. But there was still discussion of, okay, we've got XX1, but when are we doing the new 2-by? And I'm like, well, n- never. No, no, we gotta, <laughs> we got to work on the new 2-by, an all-new XX. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. This is the new 2-by. It's called 1-by no, 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 no. That's just for racers. We need something for, for everybody. uh, And then we started the war of one by versus two by versus three by. So now there's three different options and three by was still a real thing then. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was really cool time because, you know, going to every OEM brand in the world, Santa Cruz, specialized track, and showing them this crazy idea and saying, Hey, just ride it. And, you know, just thinking back to the different re- receptions that you get, some people were like, well, that thing is really cool. And some people were like, that's stupid. Get out of here. And, you know, I made a little list of who said what, but it, it was it was really like you had to fight for your idea. And, you know, I'm carrying the, you know, the hopes of and the hard work of all these engineers and inventors and designers that created this thing. Like we all believed in it. And to go out and say, hey, how'd your meeting go with so-and-so? I'm like, they hated it. They're not interested at all. They're like, what do you mean? Like, how can they not be interested? Like, yeah, but I had another meeting with these other people and they think it's awesome. And so it just really took off, um, especially in in the U.S. It, It took off really, really well and then started to slowly gain traction in Europe and, and we did Eagle a few years after that, that was the next two by I like, I got sick of hearing about two by, Oh, we need more range. So it's like, okay, shut up. Then we'll just do a better, an even better one by and, and then access electronic wireless after that and and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, you look at it now, like, well, could you, there's no modern mountain bike that you can buy and put a front derailleur on. Like it, it has, it has allowed the industry to make significant changes to how mountain bikes are built and how they work in geometry, like the geometry we have today on modern mountain bikes wouldn't really be possible with a front derailleur on it.
0: So for sure. Yeah. Think- how does it feel when you're putting something like that out there into the market? Because it's, it's so different. It's such a big risk, I guess, in a way, but then, you know, to, to sit back now so that one by literally has transformed the bikes that we're all riding.
1: Uh, well at the time, we had nothing to lose. Like there wasn't any, there wasn't, it it didn't, you know, it wasn't scary to go out and show people one buy because we had two buy as the fallback. That was the insurance policy. If people are like, no, that's stupid. Get out of here. You're like, okay, well, you know, you could totally get two buy. And so there was no, no real risk, but because it was kind of, you know, you were part of raising it. Like you want people to see it and go, oh, that's cool. Like you don't, you know, personally, you don't want somebody to tell you that what you worked on was, was ridiculous. And so there was a, a personal uh, kind of desire to be successful with it and, and a passion that, you know, I, I don't, I'm pretty stubborn and really hard headed, And, you know, even if somebody, it, it was, to me, it was almost like arguing about religion. Like I will convert you to being a one by believer by the time this conversation's over. And if not today, tomorrow, but you will believe in my God and my God is one by. And so, you know, it was difficult because some people didn't want to accept that. And it took, it wasn't in, you know, there were some brands, some, some product managers that not until Eagle did they fully embrace it.
0: Yeah. Fair play. Was there ever, ever anything in your time there that you felt passionate about and felt it was the right thing that you didn't manage to kind of get over the line and get everyone to bite into?
1: Well, Um, no, but there, I mean, yes, probably. Um, one thing that is, that quietly happened there, um, that I'm, I'm really proud of and is more successful than, than people think was the, the reinvention of grip shift, which we did, um, before one by, but while two by ten was still a thing which is we created an all-new grip shift which is you know it is the foundation of SRAM you know originally Mm -hmm. the company was grip shift it was their only product and it had faded 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 because trigger shifters were the thing uh, at least for competitive bikes but there was still a lot of really hardcore riders cross-country racers marathon racers people like this that loved grip shift and they they even liked two by 10 and even one by, but they couldn't get grip shift for it. So they were just like, yeah, man, this is awesome, but why don't you make a grip shift? And so <laughs> making that product, you know, was mostly, I don't want to say it was laughed at, but it was kind of overlooked as an important product because uh-huh. most of us didn't ride or like grip shift. But it was actually a successful product and, and still is to some extent because there is a, a, a group of people that, that ergonomically like the way it works. And I think that's okay. It's okay if you don't like it. It wasn't built for you. It was built for people who do like it. And and providing choices and options is fine. You know, It's like arguing about wheel size. I don't care what wheel size you like. And you shouldn't care what size wheel size I like. As long as the option exists, choose, you know, it's like, I don't know, what do they say on pink bike? Choose a wheel size and be a dick about it. <laughs> yeah. um, just choose a wheel size and do what you want or choose two wheel sizes. It doesn't really matter, but having choices is important. And that's what grip shift was, was, was a
0: choice. Yeah. 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 I remember having the, uh, the see-through grip shift back in the day. For
1: sure. X-rays. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 I was very proud of those. Yeah. <laughs> feels like a long time ago now
1: that was the srt 800 x-ray
0: i was gonna say i think 800 rings a bell yeah 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 Yeah, i was very happy when i got those me too yeah you mentioned that um there was a difference in in the adoption of one by between the us and and in germany or in europe how how big kind of are the differences between those two markets are they still different in what they look for
1: well, I think I can speak to this one. I, I lived in California for 20 years and I've lived in Europe for over 10 now. So I, I've really immersed myself in both and I get to travel a lot, go to a lot of different places. And I'd say when I first came here 10 years ago, there was a really big difference. Like we would do a group ride after work and I'm the only dude wearing baggy shorts. Okay. And everybody else is in Lycra on carbon hardtails and I've got, you know, an aluminum intense with riser bars and they're looking at me like what are you doing? <laughs> like uh mountain biking? They're like yeah, okay, the gravel roads over here and um wow. I mean, it's maybe that's a little bit uh, over the top, but it wasn't so much like marathon fire road mountain bike riding was a big thing. And what I'd say now though is that it's transformed radically. There is still of course that that group of people that you know, marathon racing is still really big and it's really, it's a really interesting part of the business. But when you look at an enthusiast mountain biker, even here in my little part of Germany, they're not so different than enthusiast mountain biker in Canada or California or North Carolina. Um, you know, everything is global now with, you know, Instagram and all the things we have. So we're, we're influenced by the world, not just by our backyard anymore. And I see I see people out riding here who you could never point at that person and say, oh, he's from Germany or he's from France. Like it's, uh, you know, he's, it's, I think it's really very similar in terms of what an enthusiast mountain biker looks like globally. Mm-hmm. If you look at a like to like, like, oh, a trail rider in California and a trail rider in Germany aren't so different anymore. Their needs are very similar. Now they might have different tire preferences or whatever because of the conditions they ride in, but in terms of, you know, the clothes they wear, the geometry of their bikes, the style of riding, what they're looking for, it, it's definitely gotten a lot more, a lot more similar and global. So there's okay. less and less need for, uh, big differences between the markets when it comes to, uh, most major bikes or components,
0: I think. Yeah. Well, that's good. It makes life a little bit easier, doesn't it? It could. Yeah, I can. Definitely. Well, so I mean your job at SRAM sounds like it was pretty awesome I mean for a lot of people that'd be a dream job but you've moved on and you're now the CTO at YT mm. how did that uh, how did that move come about what what made you take that that leap back into the full bike
1: um yeah I mean well you know, SRAM was a dream job. Now it's not maybe the dream job that everybody thinks, where I just get to tinker around and ride my bike all day. There's meetings and emails and budgets and travel. There's a lot of things that you know it is a real job, no matter how I like to reflect on it or how it might appear from the outside. It is it is a real job with a lot of work and a lot of things that people don't like doing. But um, there was some really great parts about it, and SRAM as a company is. You know, undoubtedly one of the greatest companies in the industry to work for. Um, And, you know, during my time there, it grew tremendously. And sometimes that's good. I mean, it's great to be successful. and It's great to grow. Um, Sometimes it's challenging. And for me as as a person, you know, I'm okay from the history I've told you about. You've gathered that I'm not super young. um, But I'm still more, you know, mountain bikes – are my passion. And it's what I live for. And I live for the bike. I live for the experience and trying to make them like, I want to make the best bike in the world or the best parts that make the best bike or whatever it is. And, um, the YT office is not so far from where I was living in Germany or where I live now. And so Marcus Flossman and I, um, we knew each other from various places and, you know, trying to sell him one by and things like that. But, um, we had a pretty cool relationship. He's, he's the founder here and the CEO. And we had, um, you know, a relationship and kind of saw each other more and more. And, you know, I'm aware of YT, of course, just like I am of, of pretty much every brand. And, you know, he said, Hey, you know, sounds crazy, but if you're ever interested in, you know, trying something new, like, let me know, give me a call. And I'm like, huh, be interesting. I kind of did, you know, like, yeah, whatever no, my job's awesome. See you later. And, um, you know, we'd have dinner once a month or maybe see each other at crank work, something like that. And, you know, always had a really good, like we always had a good vibe together. Like uh-huh. we could make fun of each other. We could ride together. We could have a beer, we could hang out. And like, there was always pretty good kind of, uh, working chemistry between us where it kind of made me think, you know, maybe so. And so I talked to him and You know, he is, he has a vision and his vision is, um, that he wants to he wants to build something new and do things different, you know, not just fit in line with everybody else, but do things a little different and try new stuff and be a little bit crazy or as it's called here, you know, uncaged. (laughs) And yeah, I, I, I kind of buy into that. I buy into the idea of doing things differently, but better. Um, And so, you know, for me, the opportunity at YT is to be a part of growing something and building it and coming into a relatively young company, especially in bike industry years, and be a part of actually being hands-on, and managing a bunch of different stuff and actually being able to, instead of being subject to a lot of decisions, but being able to make decisions. And when I find the right person for as an engineer or as a purchasing per, whatever, I can hire them and say, okay, here's how we're going to do it. And we kind of can make our own rules and, and build our own kingdom here. And that's what, that's what brought me in the door was the idea of building something and working with the team at YT to build something bigger and better and, and make more changes in how people buy bikes and what they buy and where they buy them and, and how they experience them. And I think YT had the great bones for that. And I guess my job is to kind of put some meat on the bones and some organs in there and, and make it uh, really grow into a full-on organism
0: yeah. Cause like, I think people already assume it's a, it's a pretty huge company, but there's not really that many of you, is there? It's, it's still quite small.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is, is not a small company. Um, it's certainly not a big company if you compare it to the really big bike brands. And if you were to compare it to SRAM or something like that, it's a small company, but it is a, it isn't a backyard company. It's no longer a hobby business. It's, it's a real, it's a real business, um, and running and doing doing well um it's just going through the growing pains that any small business does when you go from a to b to c to d that wow it, it just you know selling more bikes in more parts of the world with more models and more skews like there's real world challenges to that that are beyond just dude we should make it green that would be sick like that <laughs> you know that only takes you so far and to me while the making it sick and making it green is really cool Um, the other side of the coin is that, you know, probably 75% of my day is spent with operational managerial, okay, sorry for the word, but bullshit, um, Mm -hmm. of being, you know, uh, an officer of the company. It's human resources, it's meetings, it's a whole bunch of stuff that is not exciting, uh, maybe for the Wolf of Wall Street, it's exciting. But for me, like sitting in meetings and doing budgets and, uh, you know, all the things that go with managing, uh, there's like 30 people on my team and managing an Asia office and production and purchasing. Um, these are all things that are, you know, they have to be done correctly for the business to operate but they're not the whole fun part of the business of making it sick and making it green or something. But that's yeah. that's what has to happen to make a business successful.
0: So what? Yeah, what sits under your role as chief technology officer then? Because it's not so it's not just the kind of engineering side and the product design stuff. There's a lot more to it.
1: No, um, yeah. So engineering, product design, or industrial design, uh, product management, uh, project management is all what in one group here, which we call the product development team. So we do mm-hmm. all the engineering here, testing and uh, industrial design of the frames. We do specifications and BOMs of the bikes. Um,
0: BOM is bill of materials. Yeah, right? So bill that's of the materials. list of all the parts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or the spec sheet as, as it were. And um, then I also have a quality team here um, or both here and in Asia. Um and uh let's see what else there's the production and purchasing team is underneath mm-hmm. me so where we build bikes placing purchase orders planning our production uh forecasting all of those things are in with me and i manage the asia office as well we have an office in in taiwan and and that office is really critical to our business just like it is with everybody in the bike business cuz we get parts and complete bikes from asia um we also do assembly in germany so there's bikes being built kind of all over the world. And, you know, when you get to the size of company we are, it's not as easy as it was when it's, you know, one or two models and a few thousand bikes, you can, you know, one person can manage that or two people. Uh, just on my teams alone, there's, there's about 30 of us all together. And, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot to keep organized and straight, but I have a group of really awesome people. Um, you know, most of them are really passionate about bikes and even if they're not a lot of all of them are really talented at something or other and you know for some jobs you don't need to be passionate about bikes for some jobs you need to be passionate about spreadsheets and uh, organizing yes. schedules and, and some people are passionate about those things god bless them i'm not and uh thankfully i have people that, that that do do that and are really good at it because you know no one person makes anything everybody is replaceable you need a team And, um, I think that's what we're, we're trying to do is, is build a strong team because if you have a strong team, no individual occurrence can, can really, you know, change where you're planning to go and, and to have goals, we set goals and we want to go after them. And that's, that's so why I'm here. I think of myself as I'm not, I don't sit around in a suit in my office. I'm more of a working manager and yeah, I want to put my hands on that. I want to touch this. I want to, I want to talk to this person or that person and see how it's going. That's probably frustrating for a lot of people that work here with me that I'm kind of hands on. Um, but I, you know, I'm not trying to be a pain in the butt. I'm just really interested and, and passionate about it. So,
0: yeah. How long have you been there now? Oh, uh, let's see it's
1: been a, about a little over a year maybe 14 months or 13 months something like that i'm kind of like a dog when it comes to time it's like just sort of passes by and try to make the most out of it um so yeah i think it's 14 months maybe tomorrow okay. 14 months tomorrow sure how about that
0: oh, there you go mm-hmm. happy anniversary thank you what um <laughs> what kind of stuff have you been particularly involved in then and, and what have you been getting excited about in that 14 months that you've been there
1: Well, my first job was to manage, basically, product development, which was um, design and engineering of our frames and our bikes. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really my primary goal. Um, Since then, it's changed to add many of those other departments into it. Um, And now, I guess, um, what it primarily is, is, is trying to organize all of those functions together into one team. But I still... You know, my love is still creating bikes and, um, you know, I sit in the bullpen with all the engineers and designers and um, that's, you know, something that I'm still very heavily involved in. Every meeting about a new bike, you know, whatever that new bike might be, uh, I'm involved in, in the details of that because, well, because I want to be.
0: Nice. Yeah. So I guess, the I mean, the biggest launch in the time you've been there is probably the Izzo, yeah, which is pretty different bike for YT I'm guessing sort of yeah. targeted maybe towards a slightly different customer base than maybe YT served in the past yeah where where was the ISO app when you joined and and what's your involvement been with that
1: ISO was partially done when I got here so there was um, the design and the concept and um, the basically the, the the bones of it the guts of it were done um, what it was going to be which is you know a lightweight Fun to ride trail bike, 130 mil travel, that was all pretty much established. Um, we still had prototyping and production and tooling up and testing and all of that stuff to do. Um so it was really um from my perspective cleanup, but there was also, as you said, like there was the storytelling part of it. Like, you know, we have a really strong foundation of riders in the gravity and uh, you know aggressive trail market. Um, yeah. But the ISO is different. It is most certainly does not require knee pads and a full-face helmet. It is somebody going out to punish themselves to some extent on a really long ride. And not that people don't do that on Capras and Jeffseys, because sure they do. But this is a bike that ideally for us isn't it, – it's trying to speak to a new group of customers that are all about, like, they don't care about the bike park. Like, they're all about the adventure and the all-day pedaling. Um, and that's, you know, telling that story, but from a YT perspective was, was a little bit challenging. Um, but at the same, you know, it's challenging because it's not what people would have expected from YT. Um, they have expected maybe 130 mil travel with DH tires and a 150 fork. And that's not what the bike was meant to be. You know, if you're really looking for something super aggressive for smashing downhills, like get a Jeffsy or get a Capra. Like those bikes are way better for that. If you're looking for something that's just as much fun going up or on flat trails or downhills, then that's what the Izzo is for. And we specifically expect it to be different than the other bikes, not a scaled down enduro or trail bike, but a full blown fun, you know, trail and, you know, dare I say it, even, even cross country ish kind of bike. And people that have kind of looked at it with an open mind and ridden it with an open mind have been like, this thing's awesome. It's exactly what I want. And I'm the same for me. I hadn't ridden a lightweight, fast rolling trail bike in, in quite a while. Every bike in my barn was 150 mil or more. And getting on an Izzo with light tires and a more aggressive riding position and a lightweight frame that pedal like it really opened my eyes to. How lighter weight bikes can also be a lot of fun in in a different way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys very kindly lent me one for a little bit recently, and yeah, uh, heard that. It's uh, yeah, it surprised me. I'm exactly the same. Like I've I've had shorter travel bikes, but they've always been sort of quite aggressive build, like you know, not not designed for long miles or you know, yeah, cross country kind of riding. I guess. So yeah, to get on something that was so light that yeah unbelievable performance on the clients but then you can open the suspension up and it still feels pretty normal going down it doesn't feel massively compromised in any way it was yes an unusual blend of of skills i guess i've not yeah i've not written anything else quite like it
1: you know i think one of the cool things about it is that it it does have the ability if you want to up fork it and up tire it and up handle you can you can do that Mm -hmm. um but and that probably was what people would have expected from us but we also wanted to to move the needle further over to the lighter weight side so that people were like oh I get it 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 doesn't have to do that yeah it can do these things so the great thing about the ISO to me is that the platform or the frame has a lot of capability on both sides of where it sits today and uh, over the next few months, and as we move into next year, you're going to see some some really exciting ISO developments that are gonna, you know, it's always going to be able to do what it does today, but it can do more.
0: And uh, interesting
1: and excited to see how we're going to roll those things out and show people that, yeah, it's not just an ISO, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's more than an ISO.
0: Interesting. So, yeah, tell us a little bit like about the product strategy at YT and where it's headed because it feels like that the ISO is maybe a a little teaser into the fact that you guys are are thinking differently in, in more areas than just one.
1: Um, Well, one of the things that when I got here, you know, we sat down me and Marcus and Stefan Willared and and the other managers here. And we, we did a really honest look at what are YT strengths and weaknesses and what do we need to do to develop our company and to get stronger and to, to make people happy, like we want to keep. We're lucky because we're we sell direct to consumers. Is that we only have one customer, and that customer is the bike rider. We don't have to make dealers happy and distributors happy, and maybe some other politician somewhere in the chain. Like if if our bike riders are happy, then all of our customers are happy. And we did a a pretty honest look at where do we need to improve. And you know, I you know one of our issues with growing the way we've grown. And not just in terms of the size, how many bikes we sell, but the territories, you know, moving into North America and setting up shop in California, like it's a tremendous change in your business scale and, um, you have to plan more, you have to do things better. So we, you know, we know that availability, getting the bike you want when you want it has been a challenge for YT, Mm -hmm. but we also, and that's easy. So you could just make more bikes. But it's not so easy because just making more bikes, you can run into a trouble of, oh, well, so-and-so changed the fork or there's a new drivetrain or something. If you have too many, you can get stuck with old product and th- and that can be a real problem. Too many or too few are both problems. So So how do you balance that and how do you create a product strategy? We don't want to just make a bunch of boring bikes but have enough of them. We also want to still be exciting and flexible and When something comes onto the market, whether it's a tire insert or a completely new suspension technology, we want to be able to react and plan and be a part of that. Because Mm -hmm. our riders are going to say, that's the coolest tire insert I ever saw. I got to have it. And we want to be able to say, you bet it. We got it right here on this YT bike. So we have to plan and we have to be deliberate. And have a solid business foundation, but at the same time, we have to be flexible. And those two things pull against each other. Um, they can be polar opposites, in fact. And sometimes they don't work at all. Being predictable and mature and fully stocked, but being creative and crazy, uh, oftentimes don't work well together. But yeah. they can, you know, just like peanut butter and jelly or whatever. <laughs> they can work together, and that's ideally what we want to do: is take two different things. But make one good business out of both of those things, and that's that's kind of the uh, you know the the foundation of how our product plan will change going forward. I can tell you that what you should expect to see should be not to have any expectations, because there's no reason for our business, the way we sell and the way we do business, to be a slave to any timeline, model years, or calendar years, or whatever it may be. If we want to launch a bike in December, we can. We've recently opened up with a partner in Australia. And in December, they'd love to have a new bike. So we you know, we can build a new model and introduce a new model anytime we want, not necessarily January or not necessarily in March. Anytime we want, we can bring something new because we just put it on our website and offer it for sale. And we want to take advantage of that. It's something that YT had in its growing pains, we actually had adopted model years and model year introductions. Like, oh, here's our new range. I don't know that our customers care about our range. What they want, because they're going to buy one bike. What they care about is the bike they want. And that's where we want to focus our new products and our developments is, okay, if we're building the new ISO. What do our ISO customers want? And maybe some of those things are out in March, but maybe some of them aren't out until June. So why would we launch everything at once when we can just launch it when the time is right? And having that flexibility is going to be a big challenge, um, but it's part of what we want to try to do. And that will be part of our, our plans going forward is to be available and to be predictable and consistent, but also provide excitement and flexibility.
0: That sounds very tricky, but if you can do it, it sounds awesome.
1: I don't know. Ask me in a year.
0: (laughs) We'll see. We'll keep an eye on it. You mentioned that you've, you kind of, you're lucky in a way that you've only got one customer, which is the bike rider, which I agree with, but there's different bike riders, right? So you've got, you've got your customers and they're all different. You've got the media, which uh, again, maybe a slightly different subset of people. And you've also got athletes who, ride bikes very differently, faster, harder, bigger, whatever it happens to be. How do you go about making bikes that kind of are good for everyone and are not just a compromise for everyone? Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: it totally makes sense. And it's a it's it's a great question because I, I get really interested in looking at, you know, what the media says about different bikes, whether it's a bike that I've worked on or, or somebody else's bike or, or what they say about components or anything. And if, and if I look at, you know, a lot of the general media chatter, and then I, you know, okay, here's the bar size that's cool. Here's the tires that are cool. Here's the blah, blah, blah. That's the, here's the size of bike you should ride. But then I compare it to looking at what actual racers ride, the top racers. If you look at whether it's enduro or downhill or many other things or, or even trail riding. Pro racers aren't riding necessarily what the media says they should be riding. And granted, they're pro racers, but pro racers are kind of – they're just a better version of me and you. They're just – they're like me and you. They're just way better at riding bikes. And if an Enduro World Series racer is riding a 50-mil stem and 760 bars – do I need seven eighties and a 30 mil? Like, and I'm a medium sized dude. Do I need to be riding an XL? Because this guy who's taller than me rides a meat, like there's a discrepancy between what I see in a lot of media and what the top riders in the world. All right. And I think that, that bike riders who are out buying bikes, Are, you know, they get bombarded with media these days, just like we both do. Yeah. And it might be that what works in Squamish doesn't work in Unterfranken, Bavaria. Yeah. And it absolutely doesn't. Um, If I did what the media said for me to do on my Jeffsy, on my 150 bike, that 150 bike won't fit on the trails that I ride. And uh, I think people should be a little bit more open-minded or not open-minded, but should pay a little bit more attention to what works for them personally. Not just what you read on, you know, a website or in a magazine, but, you know, what works for you. And some people like a longer stem and a more compact frame and narrower bars. That should be okay. Um, And that, I think, to me is the big discrepancy, which is the media tells people what's right, but sometimes it's not what's right for every user. And so how do you expect the bike? Do you expect the bike to make the media happy? Or do you expect the bike to make the customer happy? And and then how do you even decide who the customer is? Or how do you even decide which media to make happy? Because they're all different. Uh, It's a big challenge. And, you know, you hear a lot things like, well, you know, you should have just used this front tire and these bars, and that it's only a few grams. And I don't, you know, I don't care. I take that, i'd take that 50 grams well okay first of all it's not 50 grams it's 300 and then when you say i'll take that weight but then you put the bike weight out there and you say well it's x kilos they're like why is it so heavy it's so (laughs) heavy because you wanted all that stuff on there so um you know you're all you are never gonna be right when you do um these things and that's okay um I think it's okay, especially with complete bikes, because you know what? You can change tires and you can change handlebars. You can cut them down. You can change, you can change them. You can still in this day and age with mountain bikes, you can still build it the way you want it. Um, You know, with road bikes these days, you look at how handlebars and stems and forks are integrated. You can't do it quite the same as you can with a mountain bike. And so- If it doesn't fit you, it may not just fit you, period. Um, I think people should be a little bit more experimental on their bikes and try different things. And that's what I think to me is the most important thing is people, like, listen to yourself. Don't necessarily listen to other people. Sure, you can learn things from other people and try that too. But when you find something that works for you, do it. I ride size medium bikes, almost period. Occasionally, I will ride a large, but... I'm totally okay with riding a frame that's like, dude, that thing looks kind of small. It's like, it looks kind of small because you're the same height as me and you ride a double XL. Like it's, it works for me. And so I'm okay with that. Um, Where the athletes are concerned, I think for us, you know, we want our athletes, we want to provide a product that our professional athletes can use that frame for its intended uses at the highest level we want to develop and build bikes that are capable of being used by the highest level athlete and if that's the case in terms of durability and performance and all the things that go with that and if it's good enough for them it's it's good enough for the rest of us um you know, sometimes there are things that are different, but mostly it comes down to preferences or things that can be changed, such as suspension tuning. If you've ever had a chance to ride a pro downhiller's actual bike with their settings, it is not comfortable. It is, it is not plush and awesome. It is, it is heavily damped, heavily sprung, extraordinarily tough to ride for a normal person. Um, because we're just normal people. Um, but you know, any, any bike that we sell off the shelf could be tuned and adjusted for a pro rider. And that's how we want it to be, is that we provide the foundation that can be used by everybody up to and including pro athletes.
0: Yeah. Do you think customers are getting more educated these days on what they want? There's so much media out there, so much detail available. Are customers kind of even more specific about what they want. I've heard people saying they've got spreadsheets with all the geometry numbers mm-hmm. that they think they want in there and all kinds of stuff. Are you, are you feeling that your end? Does it put a pressure on?
1: I'm not sure if people are getting more educated, but for sure they're getting more information. Okay. Uh, I think, um, you know, there's some things that we like reach, you know, reach is incredibly difficult for a normal customer to measure. And if he buys a bike and he looks at the geometry chart and says, Oh, my bike's reach is this but then changes his stem or changes his fork travel, all that's out the window. And um, I think information is great, but for a consumer, the information needs to be in a context that it actually helps them. There's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of words and things that we use in the industry. And I think maybe almost every, a lot of people are afraid to admit that, well, I don't understand how stack affects me or reach, or low-speed compression. I think that there's something, you know, the media and industry people like myself were so close to it and so immersed in it that if anything, maybe taking a step back and talking to people on more basic levels, at least consumers, about, hey, first of all, let's start with this. Where do you live and what kind of trails do you like to ride? What's your skill level? Like, what do you think your skill level is? What, what do you like in the bike you have now? And what do you not like? Understanding the person helps you understand what they need because there is no right and wrong necessarily. There's no right or wrong wheel size or frame size or bar width. It all comes down to the person that's using it. And I think you know, for us, especially at YT, a more consumer and user-oriented view versus a less media and athlete-oriented view is a direction that, that we want to go
0: yeah and i guess i mean one of the 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 ways in which you connect with your customers that is a is challenging for you guys in a way because you're a direct sales brand which is becoming more and more common but it means you don't always have that person on the ground to kind of help steer people but you've recently opened a showroom in the uk which is called the YT Mill. yeah and i get i guess that's a step in the direction to try and close that gap a little bit tell us a little bit about that and why you've taken that approach
1: um well actually there was a yt mill in the u.s in san clemente california it opened about a year and a half ago and uh-huh. um so that was the first one uh was in california and it's where our north america headquarters is uh, accounting and uh, sales and these people are all based in service are all based there in the mill uh same okay. as they are in uk um I think you got to go there and take a tour and see that it's not just a a mic shop. There's actually a working office there that's doing other things for the YT business in the UK. A couple reasons why the mills exist. Um, Yeah, we we try to create an online experience for people. And of course, there's emails and phones and Instagrams to process information. Um, But what we know about our brand is that people are really passionate about the YT brand, like white people that that have YTs or interested in YTs, like the brand is a big part of what they like. Now the product, of course, has to be good as well. You can't build something on brand alone. You have to have product to back that up and service and support and everything else. But the brand is really important to people. And the mill gives people an opportunity to have a firsthand look and feel of the brand. Not just the product, but the brand. Talk to people that work at YT. See the bikes, get a feel for, you know, what do they actually you can look at 3D things on the internet but it's actually a place for people to go and get a feel for the product and the brand and the company. Um and for us it's you know, we need office locations because we're a company and people actually work here. And if we can also in those office locations put in a brand and product experience for, why not? Um, last year, we opened up a small one here at our headquarters in Germany. So we have, okay, maybe it's not a full-blown mill yet, but there is a a part of our building here where people can come. And these days, unfortunately, you have to make an appointment and, and wear a hazmat suit and all that. <laughs> but, you know, we have a small mill here where people can come and do that in Germany. And and I think that, that what we found is that it really helps us. And we put those typically in places where, you know, it, somewhat in the heart of a local area where riding is a really passionate thing but we wanted to have a place for people that are in that area to come to like people in southern california can go to our mill in san Clemente and check it out what we found is that people come from a lot further away than that to come and check it out and maybe they even ordered their bike online and said hey i'm coming i'm driving out there from utah next week i want to pick up my bike is that cool like yeah that's totally cool like we'll make it tubeless for you while you wait and um, awesome. that's, that's kind of neat. It, it's not the intention to become a bike shop. Like we're not going to try to sell you a pair of brake pads. Um, you know, we might, we'll have some YT t-shirts there and some other cool stuff and a bunch of bikes to look at. And you can talk to somebody about it. Well, you know what? I'm kind of in between sizes. What do you think? Oh, I think we should get them out. You should sit on them and pedal them around and see. Um, so we can host demo rides, we can do events, uh, all kinds of things out of there. And it's part of the branding customer experience. It doesn't have to only be online.
0: Yeah. And it, it, you've localized the warranty support. I think certainly in the UK yeah. version of the mill anyway, which, um, yeah. you know, ultimately when you make as many things as you do at some point, some of them are going to go wrong. Right. That's just a fact, um, So, yeah, I guess it helps to have people local to support those issues, right?
1: Yeah, it does. It does help to have people local. um, And, you know, there is, okay, in some cases, there's a language barrier, um, but sometimes there's cultural things as well that, um, you know, French people might speak English, but they'd rather speak French. And so you want to give them that. And, um, you know, English people would rather speak English than American. You know, American's not the same. And, So I think you could consolidate service all in one place, but I think it actually is kind of cool if you can give people somebody more local to talk to. I think we've all experienced customer service at various different companies for various different, whether it's a TV or or something else, and service is really important. If something goes wrong, I mean, yeah, like you say, things can go wrong and will. What's important is how you deal with it, and if you deal if you deal with it well and you take care of your customers, your customers will appreciate that. And having localized service centers is, is important. Even if you don't go there, it's way better if you can send your bike, if you're in the UK, to send your bike to the UK to get service than having to send it back to Germany. Of course, you can go to local bike shops or do your own work too. But if you need to go to that extent, uh, local can be better for you. It's less time off your bike
0: yeah and the coffee's pretty good as well there i I heard that yeah i heard that well you you mentioned the hazmat suits in the in the german version of the mill like what we can't really avoid you know covid has been a huge impact positive and negative on the bike industry in the last 12 months How's it been for you guys
1: um you know like everybody last spring when it first kind of came to life um we were all really freaked out. I mean, I'd say nervous, but probably that's not a strong enough term. Um, w- nobody knew what was going on or what to expect, and everything closed. And um, the fact that everybody was more or less at home and couldn't travel and maybe wasn't going to work or the so-called home office, Um It gave people time to do other stuff. Like you can't travel. So you have to stay home. So they're like, okay, well, let's just, let's just walk down the street and go for a hike. And I was like, well, wait a minute, we've got a bike. Let's, let's go ride the bike. And it, it drove people to first, they took the bikes they had and they went for bike rides. And then they're like, wow, this thing's not working so good. Maybe I need to take it to a shop and get it fixed. And then so they did that. And we saw a massive depletion of parts and accessories for bikes. You know, helmet sales and brake pads and chains and tires like just disappeared out of bike shops. And also bikes, that same thing. People were like, well, this thing's old and the shop wants $600 to fix it. Like, I'm going to get a new one. You know, I bought this one in 87. It's time for a new one. And I think that the majority of the industry saw a, a really big increase in sales due to this people's need to go out and do something. And it's great that bikes, I mean, a lot of industries actually benefited from it, not just the cycling industry. Um, but we, we had a lot of success in selling bikes. We were also fortunate that because we were a direct-to-consumer um, market, we weren't affected by, you know, a lot of retailers were closed. Yeah, which that's not great. I mean, we don't want bike shops closed, even if there are competitors like we want we want people riding, We want more people riding bikes, we want people to enjoy bikes. and But we saw a really big increase in sales, um, as did most other brands, if not all. Um, and the global inventory of bikes, um, which can run into the millions that at any given time is sitting in warehouses somewhere. Um, or in container yards or wherever there's there's literally millions of bikes in in the world global industry of bicycles and the vast majority were depleted in in only a few months because of the the buying craziness Um, a lot of older 2000 2019 bikes that were old inventory just disappeared overnight because people would buy anything they could that had two wheels and and was they didn't care if it was last year's bike or this year's bike they just wanted a bike and so it did a great job of cleaning up the inventory that the bike industry you know we normally deal with that you know you see discounts and sales and blowouts and all kinds of other things uh you don't see so much of that this year because those bikes are gone and what that's then done, which is great. I mean, more people getting out on bikes is always good. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it's done is it's created a big vacuum and demand for more bikes in the global supply chain. And so bike factories, component suppliers, frame makers, you, know, you name it. Anybody that is in the supply chain of bicycles is really stressed right now. Because there's a tremendous demand to refill that inventory and an anticipation of Corona 2 bike boom that's going to do the same thing again. And nobody wants to miss that. So there's a lot of, I guess, wrestling for capacity and product. And it's, I mean, I've been in this industry almost 30 years. It's never been like this before. If we talk about the demand for bikes and the competitiveness to get product. Um, The lead times that exist on components now is, is inconceivable. Even for the brands that make the components, they're like, you can't believe how many orders we have is what, you know, a lot of component makers are telling me. I'm like, what do you mean? I can't believe it. I've been in the component business. Like it's, it's not just 10%. Or 15%. It's, you know, in some cases, 50% or more, more than it was ever, which I think is good. But, you know, I don't know how sustainable that is to have a huge spike in demand and sales is never good because a spike always has a downside. And yeah. um, for us at YT, you know, we want to continue to sensibly and controllably build our business. We're not going to make thousands and thousands of bikes just to cash in on the Corona thing. We're going to stick to our plan. And our plan is for controlled and sensible growth with a little bit of cool stuff mixed in. And, um, you know, we, we want to have enough bikes to keep people happy. But nobody knows what this next wave or this next season of Corona will do. Um, so I think that a little bit of caution is, is important for businesses right now, even the bike business, which, you know, is talking about its best years ever and all these things, but we should all be a little bit cautious, you know, and, and we are, we're we're trying to be really sensible and smart and not go crazy and stick to our plan is basically the goal. But yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy in the world, in the factory of building bikes these days, it's flat out crazy.
0: And have you had to change like build specs or anything like that in order to be able to actually put a bike together and get it on sale at the point that you want?
1: Um, We, yeah, we go through, we're going through that where we're not going to be able to get a certain wheel in time. So we need to consider a different wheel, a different vendor, a different supplier, something like that. I think everybody's dealing with that. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that you accept lower quality. It's just that you know, brand A might not be able to supply what you need. So you go to brand B for it. That's okay. I think it gives a lot of companies opportunities. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies, both bike companies and components companies that were having a really hard time and retailers that were having a really hard time. And, and the first Corona, you know, the little, the little pop of bike sales helped a lot of them get back on their feet. Yeah. No, that whether that's good or bad is up for a lot of debate, but, um, for sure people are seeing their businesses healthier than they were in the bike business in some cases.
0: Yeah. It's got to be a good thing. So is there anything kind of going on at YT that you're able to tell us about? Like are there, are there projects that you've got brewing that we're going to see fairly soon or anything you can allude to?
1: Um, yeah, we are gonna, you know, I, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do a lot of new stuff regardless of the time of year. I mean, real mountain bikers ride all the time. Um, doesn't matter if it, we would prefer to ride in great weather in, in the summer. But, um, you know, we're going to bring out some new bikes. We've got new stuff coming real soon. And um, I think that they're going to be exciting and they're going to give you a little taste of of how unpredictable we can be. I mean, we're not going to do something reckless and stupid like, a, you know, oh, a reverse mullet has got a 26-inch front wheel and a 29 29- <laughs> But to build exciting new bikes and offer stuff to people, um, maybe when they don't expect it, we're definitely going to do that. And you'll see some of those bikes coming out yeah, before the end of the year for sure. So, yeah, there's some new stuff coming. And then, you know, you'll, basically you're going to see new stuff all the time. It's not going to be just a once or twice a year, but it'll be all the time. We'll have new stuff coming out.
0: Yeah, it keeps you busy, doesn't it?
1: Um, it, it does in a way, you know, what it also does, is it allows you to spread out your effort. So you're not jamming an entire line of bikes into one model year that must launch on January 1st. You can spread out your effort. So, you know what, we don't have to worry about those bikes right now because the new suspension is not available until June. We can, you know, put those, we can prioritize what we're working on, which is in a way also good let you focus on what is your priority versus having to focus on everything, which isn't focus at all.
0: Yeah, and I guess it means you're always putting out what you feel is the best spec at that point in time. You're not wait. You're not kind yeah. of missing out on something. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. Sense. yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about patents because I'm guessing it's something that you've experienced quite a lot of in your time in the industry, and I'm, I suspect it's something that maybe not many people are aware of or know much about. What's kind of what's the YT view on patents? How do you approach it? how do you deal with it and then yeah what have you learned from the patent landscape out there at the moment what does it tell you about the future
1: um yeah i've had some some time around patents and understanding some of that it's a, it's a whole nother industry of um complexity because um, you're talking about legal language when it comes to patents and that's not super fun unless you're a lawyer and you could charge a lot of money for it but yeah. um you know, there's kind of a, a joke that when somebody says, "Well, why don't you just do this?" or "Why don't you just do that?" because that would be cool. The answer is always patents, or, or maybe it's trademarks. But either way, the answer is always the same, which is yeah, IP, internet, intellectual property. And it's not always true. Um, sometimes there's other reasons, but patents are a big part of everybody's daily dance. If you're in product development, um, you know, patents are a blessing and a curse. Um, sometimes people deserve to have a patent for their invention because they truly come up with something unique and special and they should be able to protect that unique and special creation, whether it's a, a part or a name or something else. Um, the idea of patents and trademarks I think is, is the foundation of, uh, of an economic society. Like, you know, pirates not come and stealing your stuff that's cool. Nobody wants pirates like raiding their ships, stealing their stuff. And, but at the same time, you know, sometimes there are frivolous patents or patents that, you know, were filed by somebody who never had any intention. Maybe they didn't even own the idea. They patented somebody else's idea that, that can stand in your way or other people's way of doing things the right way. It's not unique to the bike industry. Every industry has it, but, um, you know, if, There was a patent on a Corona vaccine that was owned by, you know, one particular country somewhere in some obscure part of the world. And they flat out said, we have this patent. Nobody else can produce it, period. Well, that's not super awesome. But the reality is they have a patent and it is ironclad and you can't get around it. What are you going to do? You know, you you either accept the system or you fight the system, but you can't choose when you do and when you don't. So it is a set of rules that you have to live by. Our position at YT is that we, we will always be respectful of patents. We will do research as much as we humanly can to make sure that we don't violate anybody's patents or trademarks. At the same time, if we develop something that we believe is novel and unique, we want to patent it. We want to protect it so that we can use it to our advantage. Um, in the invention, we pay engineers and designers and product developers to come up with unique and cool stuff. You know, that's an investment we make and we want to protect our investment. If we do something truly notable, I think everybody wants to do that. It totally makes sense, but there's a whole, there's the black and the white and there's the gray and the gray part is the one that makes you crazy. And unfortunately that's like 90% of it is gray. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Are you able to give an example of something that you guys have a patent on just for people to get a bit of a feel for what sort of things get patented in the bike world?
1: Yeah, we have a patent on the mountain bike. We're, <laughs> we're going to enforce it pretty soon and nobody else will be allowed to make <laughs> mountain bikes. But uh, no, not really. You know, there's nothing specific here that, you know, I, I look at and say, well, this is this is pretty interesting. And, you know, generally speaking, the best thing when it comes to anything involving lawyers, your best bet is not to talk about
0: it at all. Yeah trade secret
1: yeah not even fair trade enough. secret but don't say something that some you know a week down the road your lawyer's going to yell at you and say why did you say anything you should have just <laughs> shut up
0: <laughs> fair enough what so i'm guessing you keep an eye on the patent landscape though because it can help you infer what might be coming from a technology perspective is yeah, that, is that something can. you're you're active in and if so what yeah what what are you seeing what do you think is coming
1: um Well, these days it's hard to say because, you know, you can file a patent with no significant intention of ever marketing that product at all. Um, You know, you might just do a protective patent or you might just do it for the fun of it. Um, Or maybe you think it's a great idea, but. And this it is isn't. often
0: just to stop other people competing yeah. in that space. Yeah. yeah,
1: could be to stop other people. could be you know, to try to protect your idea. You don't have the money to build a prototype yet. but one day you will. when your mom gives you your allowance, then you can build a prototype. and um there's all different reasons for that. Um, so you know there's a lot. if you're watching the patent landscape in the cycling industry, you have to watch a lot. and then you have to be able to take that lot and you have to say, well, this is important and this isn't important. And I think that's one place where some of the media has gotten really good is that they, they want, and they publish like, Hey, here's a patent pending whatever that Shimano or whomever just posted And, and you know, they speculate. And I, I've been, you know, part of some of those patents that people have speculated, like why we made, why did SRAM make this patent? They must be doing this. And here's our predictions. And, you know, having worked in it, you're like, you guys' predictions are completely and totally <laughs> ludicrous. That's not the point at all. But it's cool to read about it. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I do watch it pretty closely. And I, you know, we have a, a legal team that we can say, hey, you know, search for this or run this, and they can run checks. You know, but the the thing is though, is you're not talking about a single global system. It, it's yeah. every country has its own patents, and you know, you want to add Asia to that. Well, good luck because it's huge. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, uh, the patent office in the USA there were two patents offices. There was the patent office where everybody went, and then there was a bicycle patent office that was the same size or even bigger than the general patent office. And you know, during those days, they were building you know millions of bikes per year in Chicago, Illinois, and bicycles were once upon a time one of the biggest industries on earth. And a lot of people today, they think, oh, yeah, it's just bikes, but more new bikes are built every year than new cars. Wow. And that's pretty impressive to think about that a bunch of dirty bike geeks have built and work in an industry that globally is a real professional, solid an awesome and cool industry that does really fun stuff. Like there are people who rely on bikes for their livelihood. Like it's their only form of transport. It's the only way they can get around. It's like some people, especially in Germany, like I know people who have never had a driver's license. They're, They're old at this point. They're even older than me maybe into their 70s or 80s, but they still ride a bike every single day to go to the market or to go to see their family or something. And that's pretty neat that we still live in an era where that's possible. And it would be cool if one day people didn't just say, you know what, I'm going to jump in the car and go like, wouldn't it be great if they just jumped on a bike instead? It's still one of the most economical and efficient forms of transportation that exists in the world. And it's it's a great invention. And... You know, thankfully, we're all able to participate and not get ruled out because of patents to to make and buy and and sell bicycles.
0: It's a really, yeah, it it's, a, it's
1: a really cool product. It is. It think is of the places sure. it's taken us. You know, if if you're into riding bikes, think of the places we've gone on our bikes and the places we visited and where we've ridden. It's a big. It's a big part of our lives, and that's being a part of that to me is really fun.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, where where do you see it going then? What do you think? Uh, some of the the changes or the new technologies that we're going to see over the next i don't know five to ten years i mean we've e-bikes is a is a clear trend um geometry still progressing suspensions improving we're getting Mm -hmm. kind of more integration more adjustability more uh, sort of software and electronics coming into things what's what's your view on the future
1: well i think there's there's a really a really wide horizon for all kinds of things um You know, know, I'm a traditional biker. I like to use my muscles only to ride. I do ride an e-bike. I have a couple and I I use them for certain things and I really enjoy them. But if my wife says, hey, why don't you take Saturday off and go for a bike ride? Well, I'm grabbing my mountain bike and I'm going to load up my backpack with as much as I can. I'm going to disappear for five hours. Um, But I don't think that really matters as long as people whether it's an e-bike a road bike a gravel bike or a downhill bike there's room for all and one is not necessarily get rid of the other one it's like well you know e-bikes are the future and regular mountain bikes are dead like you know that's been said so many times by so many different people in so many different industries and you know occasionally it may be true of something but i don't i think that the future of human-powered bicycles is really bright and really exciting. I think that the future for e-bikes is also really bright and exciting. And I think all of those bikes are going to benefit from continued evolution. You know, they say, well, you know, bikes can't get any lighter and bikes can't get any better. And suspension is pretty much at its peak. None of that is true. Nothing is at its peak ever, as long as there's engineers and enthusiasts that are using the product, you know, in, in, In 1985, a 911 Turbo was the most badass car on the road. Well, you know, you can go buy a Kia today off the shelf for $16,000 that has more horsepower and acceleration than a 1985 911 Turbo. Like it's it's nothing in the scheme of things. Still looks cool, but technology moved on and, and always will. And I think the same of bikes is they may not get lighter, but they could. But they will certainly get better. They will certainly get more capable and faster and easier to use and all this stuff. The same with electronics. Electronics are really cool, but they're not required. You can have a great mountain bike ride without electronics. You can have a great mountain bike ride with electronics. It's really up to the user to decide. And I think that, yeah, in some cases, like rigid forks aren't so common on mountain bikes anymore but they are on gravel bikes and that's really an off-road vehicle at this point. So maybe rigid forks still are a thing. Um, I think that there's just a tremendous opportunity for bikes to get better for the user. Um, Sometimes the industry is guilty of building bikes for itself saying, no, this is what we want. So this is what we're going to build for you. Uh, But you know, I think 29ers are a good example of that. You know, I, my first experiences with 29ers were really horrible and I was really unhappy and I was 26 for life. And, you know, I stuck to it as long as I could. And I, and I thanked the bike gods that they brought 27.5. So I didn't have to switch to 29. And then at some point, 29ers got better. And then I rode one and it was like, wait a second. This is not that old Fisher 29er that I wrote. This is something completely different. This actually works. And now, like, for me, I mean, okay, I'm not going to say I was a 29er hater, um, but 29ers are awesome now. They weren't always awesome. And that kind of evolution, you know, sometimes you have to stick with it. And it's easy to go, 29ers are stupid that doesn't mean they're always going to be stupid and being open-minded about it and trying different things you know not just 29ers but whatever it may be um is always worthwhile but i think the cool thing at the end of the day is that the industry can do whatever it wants to do and it can push things on people or push trends or try to influence the world And, and they have some effect on what people buy but at the end of the day the bike rider is is the ultimate decision maker. They have all of the votes to decide what is successful and what is not. And those votes are dollars or pounds or euros. And when consumers choose to buy something, whether it's a wheel size or whatever it is, that's the ultimate vote to decide who's going to be successful or not. And and every bike rider gets votes to decide what's going to be. If, If you really like a certain brand, then you should support them with your votes. And then they will be successful. Um, If you really don't, then don't. And that's why for us, customer service and brand and listening to our customers is so important because we appreciate that they voted for us. We want to continue to keep that loyalty and that relationship with them. And um, yeah, listening to what they have to say is important. I get, you know, Now that I'm at YT and the same was at SRAM, you know, if somebody's really looking or reading and maybe they see your name in an article somewhere or something like people will guess at your email address and then they'll guess it right. It's, oh, it's Chris backslash H at, and it's not hard. And I get emails and WhatsApps and LinkedIn messages from a bunch of different, just normal people there. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's like, why would somebody go out of their way to send me this? Like why me? Like what's the big deal? But there's always really cool stuff to read in there. It's like, hey, I bought this, and I just wanted to let you know I really loved it. Like, wow, that's That's, awesome. that's cool. Or I really hate it, and you suck. You're like, well, that's not cool. <laughs> but <laughs> but you you know it's it's good that people can can kind of do that.
0: Do you do you ever engage in those conversations with people that maybe don't like some of the stuff? Like,
1: you know, I would say that I is probably gonna doom me but i I do I you know I can't say I engage everybody but I do if somebody's going to take the time to communicate with me now if they're just being a jerk and they just want to like okay maybe I'm not going to respond but if somebody has going to dedicate some meaningful time to communicating then I'll dedicate some meaningful time to communicating back yeah you know you're not the rock it's just a bike dude and yeah. Thanks for your feedback. That's really awesome. Maybe you have a few questions and maybe I have a few questions for you. You know, what made you decide to buy a Jeffsy? What do you like about it? And I can learn from that. So for me, sometimes that's really worthwhile to ask and interact with those people.
0: Yeah. well, If they're passionate enough to get in touch, they've clearly yeah. got something to say. So yeah. yeah, lots to be learned.
1: In the bike industry, you know, it's usually people just looking for free stuff when it's people in the industry. <laughs>
0: okay fair enough well let's uh we'll start wrapping up with uh with with a few kind of final questions and the first one i wanted to ask is what do you think mountain biking is doing well at the moment and what do you think it could be doing a bit better at
1: i think we're doing well at bringing new people into the sport on e-bikes um introducing them to mountain biking i think we're not doing well at educating those people about things like um respect and trail etiquette and Uh, All of the things that have been a problem for mountain biking since the beginning, like trail access and safety and introducing a lot of new people to a sport is great. But if there isn't a certain amount of knowledge that those people have, now you've basically given somebody the power to take their bike into places they never could have gone on their own, you should also teach them the proper way to use it like, oh, I can ride up the downhill. That's cool. Well, you should be aware that some people are riding down the downhill. And the rule is, you know, you they don't know the rule. There is no Imba to a lot of these people. and And there needs to be something that, you know, keeps us all safe from, because we don't want something to happen where our trails get closed, because a gang of people went out and built a bunch of giant jumps on a family trail and you know, somebody got hurt and then now nobody can ride anything. So I think we're doing a good job of bringing people into the sport with mountain bikes, but we need to do more to help educate them and, and teach them about the, you know, kind of the laws of the land of mountain biking.
0: 100% in agreement with that. That's uh yeah, very, very well-made point. Exactly how I feel about that. Super positive, but comes with risk that needs to be addressed. Good stuff. All right. What advice would you give for people that want to get into the bike industry? You've spent uh, your whole career pretty much within the bike industry in various different roles at different levels and in a lot in a lot of different aspects of it. So there's, you know, there's a huge amount of opportunity out there for people, but what would be your kind of personal advice to anyone who wants to work in the bike world?
1: Um, that's a great question. I'd say, you know, be ready to start at the bottom and get your foot in the door. That's, that's the hardest part often um, be passionate about bikes, but understand that the industry is not just about bikes it's a business and it's an industry just like any other. And it it has the same baggage and stuff that goes with it, you know, administration and paperwork and meetings and conference calls. But that's the price you pay for working in an industry with products that you love. And if you come into it knowing that and you're willing to do the hard work, you know, there's a tremendous amount of opportunities in this industry. I'd say you should also think about what you love, love doing, for work whether it's in this industry or not if you love accounting or spreadsheets or something you can find a cool job in the industry now it might not be being a professional free rider but every bike company has an accountant and a controlling team uh, every every bike company has a purchasing team and and develop your skills and your education and if you bring passion and education and skills to the industry there's tremendous number of opportunities There's no shortage of opportunities for people in the industry um, if you bring certain things to it, but you can't just be a shredder and think you're going to get a job. Nobody cares if you shred, really. Um, If you don't have any skills, or you don't have experience, or you don't have professionalism, shredding is not actually a job. Like nobody's, you know, it's not it's not a full time career.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you don't necessarily need to be an amazing bike rider or a super good engineer. There's so many different avenues within the sport.
1: Yeah, there really is. Yeah, yeah. You know, cool. The best bike riders don't always make the best testers.
0: That's yeah. It's a really interesting point, actually. It's a it's a different skill being able to ride fast, being able to being able to explain. Yeah. How a bike feels and what needs to change, right? Yeah. Interesting. All right. We're going to finish up with our final four questions. First, one of those, if our listeners had 150 pounds, which is about 165 euros to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on?
1: I recommend they spend it on some bread and some peanut butter and taking their bike to ride as many different places as possible. And that's going to improve your performance more than any, any part on the bike wheel for 165 euros. It's not a lot of money
0: yeah and is the key to is the key to success there the amount of riding or the amount of different places you go
1: yeah, both of those things i mean you could you can ride around your your home over and over and over again, and that's gonna make you a better rider as long as you mix it up a little bit. Um, but traveling to different places with different types of riding and different earth surfaces, you know, both are going to make you a better rider. You don't have to travel to become better. It's certainly nice and it and it can help you, but you can make the most of what you have at home.
0: Definitely. We all, all right, have to stuff. these days. So yeah, spend, we do at the moment. spend
1: that money on experience. That's my advice.
0: Good advice. All right. If you could wind the clock back and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him?
1: Keep riding that bike.
0: It worked out all right, didn't it?
1: I don't know. Ask me, ask me later. I guess it's working <laughs> out okay. I get to do what I love, yeah.
0: Yeah, cool. Third question, if you could have a coaching session from anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them?
1: Um, you know what I probably learned most uh, riding my bike um, with Kurt Voorhees, okay. um, Uncle Kurt. He, he's, he's always been able to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And I don't like being told what I'm doing wrong because, in my opinion, it's nothing. But he's always been really good at saying, "Hey, Chris, man, check this out, dude. You should try this. It would be sick." And and it is like he can see through your weakness and like, but put it to you in a way that it's not. It doesn't make you feel weak. It makes you feel like, "Oh, cool. I'll try that." Because Uncle Kurt said so. Uh, I'd love to be able to ride with him a couple days in Whistler or wherever, and and just get some pointers. And and he's a lot of fun too. But you know, anytime after eight o'clock PM, maybe it's best that you go your separate ways though.
0: <laughs> Things <laughs> gets get a, little wild. a bit loose.
1: <laughs> um, Excellent. And, you know, aside from that, I'd say that it's, it's hard to name anybody. I think I'd say, you know, that I'm fortunate enough to have been around a lot of really spectacular, talented people um, both in this industry and out. And, you know, rather than, I guess, wishing I had somebody new, I'm thankful for the people that I have had. And, you know, I'll keep looking for all of them. It sometimes comes from the most strange places. Like you might say, oh, I'd want to, you know, sit down with Steve Jobs. And while that would be awesome or Jesus or whatever. um, Yeah, I don't know. I think that the best experiences that we're going to find are sometimes like right next door. You don't have to go far or, you know, go onto Instagram to find them. It could be somebody that's literally sitting down the hallway from you and, and take the time and try
0: it. Yeah, you just got to keep an open mind, right? Yeah. Cool. All right, final question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Well,
1: okay, maybe not every day, but when I do it, it helps, and I'm not that guy, but a little bit of yoga is not a bad thing. It, uh, You know, and I don't even want to call it yoga. It's more like just stretching, but it really helps the achy old joints and muscles wake up and feel it keeps me going. Um, without it, I would just keep destroying my body on the bicycle. And it's, it's something that's, it's free, it's cheap and it's easy. And it doesn't, you don't have to go out and do anything. You can do it anywhere at any time. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm not that guy that's going to preach about yoga, but it's helped me a lot. So why not give it a try?
0: Amazing how hard it still is to fit it into the day though, isn't it? When you can do it for free wherever you yeah. want, whenever you want.
1: And even if you do 10 minutes, like really, you don't have 10 minutes because you just spent 48 minutes on Instagram, but
0: <laughs> um,
1: yeah, it's true. Very true. Cool.
0: All right. Well, it's been, uh, been super interesting finding out more about your career and what you're up to at YT. If people want to find out more about what you're up to where's the best place to, for them to head
1: um my local trails around my house are pretty sick and uh <laughs> if you find me out there you know i'm happy to take you for a loop and show you around that's you know probably the best thing i'm on awesome. in, i'm on instagram i'm around
0: okay and what about for the yt stuff is it yt dash industries
1: yep. uh www.yt-industries.com um a lot of great new stuff coming out there and I think you're going to see some really, some really cool and exciting things coming up for us. So, so be sure to watch that and, um, yeah, keep us and keep watching us on Instagram and and all the other places too. We're, we're, we're here and, you know, thanks for the support from everybody that's out there. Really appreciate it. And really, Chris, thanks for your time talking to me. Hopefully it didn't, uh, burn all your storage up on your machine. (laughs)
0: i <laughs> know it's an absolute pleasure i have a have a good rest of the day and uh, yeah maybe we'll see you out on those trails soon
1: yeah it's friday i think i'm gonna sneak out of here and go for a ride i mean testing nice i'm going right. testing yeah that's it
0: very important <laughs> cool cheers chris yep, wow. all right that's it for this episode with chris i hope you enjoyed listening a massive thanks to We Are One Composites for supporting this episode of the show. If you're keen on a set of their awesome carbon wheels or bars, then for the month of December, you can use the code SANTAGIVES20 for 20% off. That's an awesome discount. So head to wearonecomposites.com now to check out their full range. That code again is SANTAGIVES20. That's SANTAGIVES, all one word, followed by the number 20. Also, a massive thanks to YT for supporting this episode. Don't forget that the YT Mill Surrey Hills is now open. So if you want to take a look at the bikes or perhaps even take one for a ride on the legendary local trails, then get in touch with their team of experts and get yourself booked in. The YT Mill is open from Tuesday to Saturday from 9am to 5pm. And you can find out more over at YT-Industries.com. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on DowntimePodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can grab yourself a t-shirt or one of our brand new sweatshirts or hoodies by heading over to downtimepodcast.com. You know what to do by now? Please keep on spreading the word about the podcast. The more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. It really is that simple. And if you've got time to give us a review, then iTunes is a great place for it. And it really helps this thing grow or wherever you listen. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up soon. But until then, get out and ride.